Talking Across the Lines, LLC, and the Southern Maryland Folklife Project are proud to present Born and Raised in Tobacco Fields. Portrait of a Changing American Landscape. Written by Carrie Noble Klein and Adam Nordell. After the tobacco harvest in Calvert County, amid the eternal ancestral chorus of crickets and cicadas, farmers find time to reflect on their lives toiling in the hot southern Maryland fields and tobacco barns, stripping sheds and warehouses. Production of tobacco, or sotweed as they called it then, dates to the founding of Calvert County 350 years ago. Suddenly, since a state-administered buyout was established in the year 2000, tobacco farming is virtually a thing of the past here. Yet those lingering images and landscapes have plowed deep furrows in local memory. My name is James W. Diggs. I'm 68 years old. It all begins in the first part of the spring when my father and I, we used to clear the spot off to make a tobacco bed where we would plant our seeds. And then the plants would grow. We had to pick the grass out of the tobacco bed so it wouldn't suffocate the little tobacco plants. And then about the middle of the last of May, we would start planting our tobacco. We had to prepare the land first. We had to plow the land and put fertilizer down. And we used to plant tobacco by hand, which is two fingers, and, and be bending down all day long planting tobacco. Once it were planted and began to grow, then we would have to color the tobacco. We would do that with a weeding hole. Then we had a, a cultivator, they used to call it, that we would pull by a horse. And we'd go up each row to cultivate and keep the grass out of it. That was all summer. And then about the last part of July, first part of August, harvest time came. The tobacco would have what we call tops in it. And we had to go down each row and break these tops out of the tobacco. And then we would cut it and hang it in a barn. And let it cure. They called it curing. It would turn brown from green to brown. And then in the wintertime, we would strip it, put it in bundles. And then in the spring, Daddy would pack it down, what we call burdens. They would pack it in a basket or pack it on a stick. And then uh, carry it to the market and sell it in the spring. My name is Helen I. Gray. I've been 90 years old. I was farming ever since I was around five or six years old. And we raised tobacco on the main lane. He could have and we could have. 
say that's what it was years back. We ain't get nothing much then back. I was penny a pound bottle of tobacco. Nicker. Quarter for the best. Huh? Yeah. Be surprised. Come a long ways, honey. Long ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember one time, you know, I guess it was about 12, 13 maybe, something around there, very young. My daddy told me he wanted me to cultivate two fields of corn, and it was down in the bottom. You had to go over here down in the bottom, very hot down in the bottom, it's in the summertime. And uh, he said, James, if you don't play around, you can get both of those fields done in a day. So. Uh, I started about 7.30 that morning down in the bottom of the cornfield. And I worked hard that day. I stopped and ate lunch and I went back. It was extremely hot that afternoon. And about 3 o'clock the horse fell. And I couldn't get the horse up. And uh, when Daddy came home from work, I told him that the horse had fallen. I couldn't get him off the ground, so he went down. We got him up. The horse died that night because I worked him too hard. And uh, my dad was quite upset with me because we sharecropped, and we lived on the white man's farm. And we lived in his house, so whatever we grew, we had to give him half. When we uh, grew out tobacco and sold tobacco, he would get half or whatever price we got for the tobacco because we lived on his farm. And the animal belonged to him. The horse was his horse. So my daddy had to pay him $25 for that horse. And my uh, daddy was quite upset with me. Said I could at least rest the horse. <laughs> and I said to myself, what about me? I said, why didn't you say, why didn't you take a rest? But he was more interested in the man's horse than he was in me, where it seemed to me. My name is Lindsey Wilson Reed. I was a backer farmer. <laughs> I share crop for God all my life, you know, work and give the landlord half. And then God worked with said, Lindsey, why don't you stop farming? I wouldn't stop. My name is Franklin Wood, and I still love the smell of diesel smoke. I plowed some this morning. The new earth plowing is a wonderful smell. My name is Judith Dow Levitt. The tobacco was our, that's how we made it. That's how my dad made it. It was still, it was the number one money making crop. And actually it still is. And I'm really mixed about seeing it go. I know that there are problems with it, but when it's a part of your life, it's kind of hard to see it vanish. I could see my grandpa working in the fields In the days before they had rubber on the wheels Oh, so much has changed since then, there's too much going on Years like pinwheels in the wind 
My name is Dr. Christine Bergmark. I'm the director for the Southern Maryland Agricultural Development Commission. One of the things that, that I've learned through working on this program is the steep tradition of tobacco. It's a part of the culture. It's a part of the society. It's a part of the economy of Southern Maryland. And it's steeped. It's a deep, deep, deep tradition. And it's not something that can be just changed overnight. It's not something that even a tobacco buyout, as the state is offering, can change overnight because it is a culture. Getting up and going to tobacco fields, cutting and working and making it yield. It was hard work. I worked till I hurt. Felt those muscles up under my shirt. I'm a southern son, born and raised in the back of fields. Cutting that back of watching time pass under them wheels. Passing on out of sight, southern son. There ain't no reason to call me something high. It's late in the season, life spills over the day. My name is David Conrad. My title is Extension Regional Tobacco Specialist with Maryland Cooperative Extension of the University of Maryland. First year that I raised tobacco in 1979 was the tobacco blue mold year. First year that we had seen the blue mold organism in quite some time. I raised tobacco for 17 years and made money every year except my first year. My name is John Prouty. Tobacco was really a big deal when I was growing up. My earliest memories of being involved in it were when I was four or five and, you know, riding up to the market or watching them load tobacco. What's your name? Tanner, Butch Tanner. My grandpa helped build this one, these warehouses. Back back years ago, it ain't like it was now, this place stay open two, three months a year. We'd stay here from 7.30 in the morning till sometimes 11 o'clock at night. Unload truck. Gilbert Buddy Bowling, Sr. This particular building was built in 1938 while they started construction. They had a sawmill right here. The first auction was in 1939. With the tobacco buyout, it was a mental strain for me. It took a while for me to accept the fact that tobacco is no longer the king. The volume has gone from 24, 30 million down to, well, this year we'd be lucky to have two and a half. When I ride around the Southern Maryland area and see field and field of, of grain and, and no tobacco, it's, it's telling a story that's, that's hard to believe. Standing there staring at the good old times, how they all seem bittersweet like wine is seen always. In his days, soon like a river he'll drift away. He's a southern son, born and My name is S.L. Brady. All I wanted to do when I was little was be on one of these tractors around here when it was moving. 
Been around this stuff all my life. It's what I wanted to do. My daddy used to hire me out and we would work all day long, either picking tobacco beds or cultivating fields or whatever we had to do for this particular white man. And he would pay me sometimes 50 cents a day. I think the highest I ever got was a dollar a day. so vividly that uh, one morning I was going to do some work for a man and uh, when I arrived at his house he told me to boy go down in the barn and uh, hook up the two mules and I want you to go back down in the back field and cultivate the cornfield and I can remember walking from his house down to the barn and before I arrived at the barn, I could hear the mules kicking each other and making a lot of noise. And I was afraid to go into the barn to get the mule because I was afraid the mule was going to kick me. So I went back up to the house and told the man that I was afraid to go in there where the mules was. And he cursed me and told me that uh, none of them so-and-so mules wasn't going to hurt me go down there and hook the mule up. But I went home and I told my mother, and uh, she said, well, don't worry about it. You don't have to go back. And Daddy was quite upset, but Mom was mom was good. She protected me a lot. But I would never forget that. He was very mean. He was a nasty man. I didn't like for him to call me boy. He had a tendency to call us boy or niggas at that time, and I didn't, I didn't care for that. My name is Cassandra Briscoe. I didn't actually, as a child, work in the tobacco, particularly the men who grew up in the tobacco fields. Probably feel more strongly about it because I observed it from inside a house sipping lemonade when I was a child. Everybody had their own farms. They worked on their own farms, and everybody had to do their own, own cutting, harvest, and planting, and everything. Had to do that themselves. The only time they really came together was in November when it was hog killing time. And maybe two or three of the neighbors would get together with Grandpa and my dad and kill hogs. And they just kill maybe 15, 16 hogs. If you go north on Maple Road, you'll come across two Methodist churches right next door to each other. They both have cemeteries, and the cemeteries meet down in a ravine, a shallow ravine. They're both United Methodist churches, which of course begs the question of what the heck is going on here. The simple answer is one is historically white and one is historically black. They began as a single congregation, and on the eve of the Emancipation Proclamation, the African-American Methodist Episcopalian worshipers were granted the authority to form their own conference. It was the all-black Washington Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church. The White Conference was the Baltimore Conference. They reunited not until the 1960s. It is now called the Baltimore-Washington Conference of the United Methodist Church. 
But the congregations are historically separate. That black congregation built its first building in 1867 on land donated by the same man who had donated the land for the white church. Uh, they've shared really very little ever since. Uh, the driveways are separate. And whoever mows, they don't hire the same groundskeeper. You know? so, so in summertime, you, you, that's where you get a, a clue where one cemetery ends and the other begins because the grass is always at different heights. And there's this kind of uh, diagonal line in the grass between one property and the other. But there's a whole lot to be learned if you walk through the cemeteries. Some of the names are the same. And you can go off into the land around and find the descendants of many of them, both black and white, sometimes in the same family. pretty much with my dad. When I was growing up, I'd help him in the stripping room to hand the tobacco to him so he could put it in the burdens. There's times with my dad, um, were very special times. My dad worked the farm for 60 years before he died. But even before that day, I Cause I knew he'd never had that much and probably never would But now I see he had more than a man now ever could Back when times were good and times were bad Daylight would fade and we'd always be Find a better way, a little brighter day, just to find the best times we ever had. Was out of dad between the rows. He um, didn't want any of us to work on the farm. He just encouraged all of us to get outside jobs. He says, look at these hands. I don't want your hands to look like this, but <laughs> he was one of the hardest working men I ever knew, and I respected him so much for that. Just to find the best times we ever had was out of dad between the rows. I remember my dad saying, get up this morning, son. My name is Buddy Hance. You know, we had these greenhouses. They were already here. We were growing our tobacco plants in greenhouses. So progression to flowers was fairly easy for us. The buyout was really just icing on the cake because we were going anyway. 
I mean, there were days there in the end in the summer we were cutting the back and it'd be the three of us and some black ladies in the neighborhood that helped us and none of them were under 60. That's pretty scary. <laughs> when, when your future is dependent on three people, uh, senior citizens, to do the kind of work we were doing. Years ago, you could pay a couple dollars a day to cut the back and give them a meal. Now you got to pay $10, $15 a day plus buy them the meal. It was 17 cents a stick to strip the back. I don't know how much it is now. It's probably up to a quarter now. That business of, you know, one day you walk in there, it's a dollar eighty, dollar eighty, dollar eighty, dollar eighty. Come back two days later, it's a dollar forty-five, dollar forty-five, dollar forty-five for the same tobacco. And then maybe the first day you go in and they're not feeling all that good, and instead of dollar eighty, they say dollar sixty, dollar sixty, dollar sixty on yours. Well, maybe you could fold your ticket, reject it, come back and sell it, and get the dollar eighty the next day. But maybe the next time yours went back on the auction, it was a dollar forty-five. That more than anything, even more than the labor, that just drove me crazy. That uncertainty. It was up and down, and it uh, up and down from week to week or even day to day. So I think even more than scarce labor, that was something that made me very willing to take a buyout. The market for this year is worse than last year. Way worse. And I thought I would I would take a death from my price. But I wouldn't take a this year. I wouldn't smile when I felt like crying. If you bad film go home. You know what you got for what you can got into it. Between your labor, your fertilizer, your time, your fuel for your tractors, and everything else, you figured all that and a little bit of money that you do get, you hope you bring yourself above water. But a lot of them don't make it. <laughs> well, a lot of them now nah, ain't doing, ain't doing it no more, I guess. But a lot of the houses don't close down there. Even up mall, bro, they don't close most of them down. They've done us common, ain't they? The tobacco companies have stole tobacco from the Southern Maryland tobacco farmer for years, finding anything they could wrong with it for as a reason to cut the price on it. But cigarette prices, they always stayed the same. Yeah, they, they've done us common. There's no getting around. Now those days past, the spine storm clouds gathered dark. Other hands across the land were once our farming start. Here talking about this sick council, this and council. They said cigarette, but yeah, people are just dying and have cancer, never smoked in their life. Huh? See, years back, we didn't have that poison put on our crop. Now, everybody been using it, that's farming. It's true, isn't it? It's true. If you put it on top of the ground, when the rain comes, where is it going? In the ground. Everything that we got is poisoning it. Even your drinking water. Hmm? Not a farmer's or somebody else's problem to get smoke cigarettes. 
That's the parents. Well, why they blame tobacco for it? There's a lot more out there worse than tobacco ever be. The state of Maryland chose to use its portion of the master settlement and put it into what's called a cigarette restitution fund. Our Southern Maryland legislators at the time said, we'd like to help our farmers find a way to transition out of tobacco. After all, this has been their livelihood, and it's been a noble livelihood for them. And we're looking now to take that away. So our legislators argued to, to get a minimum of 5% of the cigarette restitution fund in Maryland to come back to the Southern Maryland farmers. I think the governor of Virginia gives some of the tobacco farmers a right good cutout of the master settlement agreement as compensation for loss of market and income because of declining cigarette sales. Well, we didn't have the right governor up here. They sent that proposal to him, and he point blank told him that he wasn't going to compensate nobody to grow tobacco. But then they come back and they put another option in front of us. Buy it. Get out. He, that's what he wanted. Get out. Quit growing it all together. They mailed me a letter, and they, I mean, they mailed me three or four letters about it, and I wouldn't take it. And uh, the crop I sold, I couldn't get no help, couldn't get nobody to help me draw a plant. No, I, I plant but an egg and a half. When July came, 4th July came, I quit. Southern Maryland is the fastest growing area in the state of Maryland for development. And we're encouraging them to get out of tobacco. One of their recourses is to certainly turn around and to sell their land. So we wanted to be able to provide an incentive for farmers to not sell their land. Not a, not a requirement, but an incentive. So that's the agricultural land preservation part of the program. You can still sell that land and go out and rent two acres and, and plant 20 rows of sweet corn, fall 1040F. There's no requirement that says you can't sell that farm. We lost 370,000 acres of farmland in a decade to the five counties of Southern Maryland. All of us that are working with the Tobacco Crop Conversion Program are hoping that we don't lose our agricultural base. The growing houses in the fields between the towns And the starlight driving movies closing down the road is gone to the way it was before And the spaces won't be spaces anymore The small specialized organic type things might be a niche for some people. So we need to preserve those small places and not just let the developers include them into their development plans by cutting another street through the woods. Two more farms were broken by the drought First the Wagners, now the Fullers pulling now Developers paid better than the corn But this was not the place where they were born Houses in the fields, no prayers for steady rain this year. Houses in the fields, there's houses in the fields. The last few farms are growing out of here. 
pull every arm out now. But they didn't build it up now. There ain't no farm no more. Four or five acres I got there on the side of the road there. Like food. I was working back on but that was a big farm. Oh, no, that was a big farm. Just only them four or five acres that he left me for a lifetime right on. That's the only thing I ain't got a house on, but the rest of it's all built up. At first he wouldn't sell and then he would. Now there'll be children playing where the silos stood. The word came from the marrow of his bones. It was the last sure way to pay off all the loans. Now they're fussing about cigarette giving people cancer. And uh, people just give up. That's why they're building up all they have. People ain't working crop. You got to pay tax on your land. And you ain't making enough money. So you have to give it up. That's better than taxing than taking it. One time all around was nothing but tobacco. And I got two old dogs, rabbit dogs, three old rabbit dogs. But I think I went out last year with them dogs. I fed them dogs a whole year. And I think I went out two times and killed two rabbits. That's what I feed them for. <laughs> but actually, there's no place to hunt. People don't build it up. The new streets will be named for kings and queens. And the ransom will be paid for every castle's dream. The model sign is crested with a lion. And the farmers, they will have enough to die. in the fields No prayers for steady rain this year Houses in the fields There's houses in the fields The last few farms are growing out of here The other thing that bothers me about the development is the forest end of it. I just heard not recently that one acre of trees removes 13 tons of pollutants from the air a year. And they went up here for the Huntington School and cleared 54 acres clear. Not a tree or bush left on it to put to school. That's right here at the intersection of Huntington where all this traffic is. So if you multiply 54 times 13, multiply that by the next 50 or 100 years, that's a lot of pollutants that we're going to eat. The road is gone to the way it was before. Spaces won't be spaces anymore. Now the spaces won't be spaces anymore. Calvert County has a transferable development rights program, and it is frequently held up in planning circles as an example to the nation. As a jurisdiction, I think there's something like 9th or 14th countrywide in land preservation. So land is scarce. I mean, Calvert County is only 140,000 acres, period. And already we've preserved over 22,000 acres, mostly in farmland, farm and forest. Uh, it's been perpetually preserved in a variety of these kinds of programs. 
the TDR program encourages preservation of the countryside or maintenance of the countryside as rural, as undeveloped, and encourages the concentration of development in the town centers. And that was the way it was envisioned to work in the first place. And uh, we're all winners in the long run because that countryside is preserved and ways of life, presumably, along with it. The details of the ways of life are changing, obviously. People are moving from tobacco into, into other things. But the focus on agricultural pursuits is still alive. We're not seeing the end of agriculture along with the end of tobacco. I'll tell you one thing, I never thought I would see them much traveling cattle I really didn't. I remember one time, I called my wife in that house there. I met my wife and her mother and her father, he lived here, and her sister. And uh, I left from old ass to come here, and I believe I sat for five minutes just across the road. It's a fact. Not everybody is moving wholeheartedly into a whole new agricultural operation. I certainly see a lot of our younger farmers are doing that. Some of our older farmers are closer to retirement or they're at a stage in their life where they're physically not capable of continuing in agriculture. For them, their agricultural efforts might be more minimal. Most of these guys, you know, are not farming. They, they've quit. I got a... Uh... Just uh, seed the land every year, you put something on the land. I mean, you can grow anything you want, or you can put tomatoes or corn or anything on it. But uh, I'm just going to plow it up and reseed it over again. Feed the deer. There's plenty of them, they need some meat. <laughs> when you're 62, you're not looking very far ahead. But the younger farmers, the few that we have, are working on ways to continue to farm. And uh, that's a small percentage. I mean, but we knew that going in. It broke my heart the first year, the number of people who came in literally wringing their hands saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. Almost with tears in their eyes saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know that I want to give up tobacco. I'm losing the market. We're very, very concerned that if the buyout takes a hold, we'll lose the rest of the existing market that's here because there won't be the production to support the warehouses. Lord, when I call on you and I want you to hear me, I am troubled down here. Oh, when I call on you. And I want you to hear me. Oh, I am troubled down here. Well, from the standpoint of a grower who was 65 years old, 55 years old, 70 years old, this was the goose that laid the golden egg because the state Maryland said you can take some of this master settlement agreement money in exchange for not raising tobacco. And this is exactly what farmers said to me. I don't want to raise tobacco 10 more years when I can get this payment. 
you know, I'm old, you know, my back hurts. And the wife is telling me, you know, she wants you to quit working like a dog. You, I am troubled down here. And it's very hot and it's very dirty work because there's a great deal of tar on tobacco which gets all over you, which makes the sand stick to you, and the whole business is, I think, hot and hateful, actually. I can remember it used to be in the field cutting tobacco and spraying tobacco. And the man farm that we lived on, his house was up on a high hill and had a bunch of shade trees around his house and it was always cool up here. Seemed like a breeze would always be blowing. We were down in that field, 110 degrees out there. And he would be sitting up on those little trees looking down his field at us through his binoculars. I used to hate that. And I made a promise to myself. And when I got out of high school, I was going to get off that white man's farm. And I did. I graduated in June 54. In July, I was gone. I was in the Air Force. I went in the Air Force. Daddy didn't want me to go. But Mom signed the papers. So I left. I mean, it's drudgery. The farming population producing tobacco is an older population. They review the contract and agree to the terms. What the contract binds them to is forevermore, the rest of their lives, they're out of tobacco. They themselves can never produce tobacco. And you can never grow it again. You can't you can, you can grow it. You can't help nobody. You can't, use, you can't rent your barn to nobody to hang it in. You can't, you can't do nothing in the bike once you take the bike. You couldn't go and help a friend strip? No, sir. It's... Nope. You can't do nothing. I am troubled down here. Once you take the buyout, you're not supposed to have any other contact with the crop. As harsh as that sounds, you know, you couldn't help it. your brother, your neighbor, your sons. Because we just felt, you know, to keep the integrity of the program. Because if I was getting a buyout and my brother didn't, and people driving up and down the road see me out in the field helping him, it wouldn't look, you know, it would look like I was still in the tobacco business. And that's been a, that was a pretty contentious point in the beginning. Farmers really had a hard time with that because farmers generally like to help each other. And, you know, even though I took the buyout, if my neighbor was in trouble one day, you know, I'd want to help him out. Well, I didn't sign up for it. So many of them did to pay you for 10 years not to raise a back. But now look, after 10 years, what you got? You ain't got nothing making up more. Because if the government got to in choice, you can't put nothing on them on what they want you to put on, on your life. Gonna tell you what you can raise on and what you can't. See? Ain't no good. That's why people sell their property. I don't know 
what SL's decided, but of course, yeah, I mean, I know he hadn't taken it yet. I don't know what he's going to do. You know, he's young and he wants to farm and uh, forever is a long time, you know. So uh, those last few people, you know, in my mind are the younger ones that are just debating what to do. I'm 30 years old right now. If I take it next year, my money runs out when I'm 40. And I hope to live longer than 40. So, so that's how the buyout works. With my wife going back to work, I'm thinking very seriously about continuing to raise someone, at least until the market goes. And hopefully by then, my wife will be a nurse. And she can stop us from starving to death and I can continue to farm somehow or another. It was never assumed that I would have anything to do with the farm. I was taught to embroider and wore fluffy dresses with big sashes on the back and it was assumed I would grow up and be a little Miss Pris. I didn't quite make it. Actually, what happened, I was married. My husband had hurt his back and could practically not move. It was springtime, and he should have been plowing. And I kept looking at that tractor down there in that field. And I decided, I can do this. So I did. And once I saw that dirt roll behind me, I knew I didn't want to do any more embroidery. Elevating is wonderful, to me. You can roll along pretty good with a two-row elevator, and I love to do that. I mean, it's it's just such beautiful work, and you see every plant. You, you're sitting right there on top of it, and you see, damn, old John missed that plant. He, <laughs> he must have been asleep. You know, a cutworm got that one, or a deer cut it off. You know. I love to use farm equipment, too. We've still got the bike of the strip, but I'm chomping at the bit to get behind the steering wheel of a tractor, so. And I guess it's being your own boss, too. You don't have nobody telling you what to do. You, you make your own decisions. Uh, I used to have at least two big loads of tobacco. And I mean strip most of all myself, two big truckloads. Huh? So then there's strip. Strip, 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 strip. Nighttime, I always lights on the strip. Did you sing while you worked? Huh? Did you sing while you worked? I ain't had time to sing. Well. <laughs> My name is Elma Meckel. I was born in Kellett County. My mother's name is Rosa Meckel. And I was a musician since I was five years old. Mother, she was a gospel singer. She had 17 hitty kids. Miss them all just by herself. When I got up to seven, eight years old, I used to work for down half a day, cutting tobacco. After tobacco was cured, and we take it out the bone, pull it off, and strip it, and tie it bung up. All of us used to get together and do some singing. And you're talking about singing, big cool singing. You know I try to live the best in service, and I try to do the best I can. 
Oh, when I choose to do the right thing, eagles pressed on every hand. And I looked up and I wonder why, you know the good fault didn't pass me by. Then I said to my soul, don't you worry, the Lord will make a way somehow. Don't you know the Lord will make a way somehow, Lord? When we need the cross abound, then He will take away His soul and let Him have better now. Only when the Lord be down so heavy, you know the weight is all upon my brow. Then I said to my soul, don't you worry, the Lord will make a way somehow. I don't know what I'm going to do this morning. That was my hobby, just go down the barn, sit in the barn, and all the one to strip. I don't know what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to sit in the all the one. I still enjoy the farm. It gives me a place to go to sort of hide a little bit. And uh, this place, I enjoy it. It's just part of my life, that's all. I'll never take the value. And I don't want anyone to say to this old boy that you can't do something for the rest of your life. So I'm out. I think it's unconstitutional. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, and I know they got smart lawyers, and nobody would have the money to fight them anyway. But, you know, if I went to court and you were the judge and you passed a life sentence on me, the first thing I'd do is appeal it. There was a lot of anger in the community when this was first proposed, when the buyout was first proposed. A lot of people who said, we don't think the state has any right to come in and tell us what we can and can't do. I'm very appreciative of the fact that it is a voluntary program, and that's why from my perspective I've always said, I won't try to sway anybody one way or the other. It's, it's voluntary. If you choose it, we'll help you. One of the big problems I have with it is I'm not going to sign a life sentence on myself. I'm not going to say that I'm only going to live for 10 years and take the money and run. And I wouldn't be able to help my grandson if he did decide to farm, not even by talking to him how to do it. You couldn't put your hands on it for the rest of your life. And I found that very hard to swallow and still do. We were overwhelmed, to be honest. Although it was a voluntary program, and although there were a lot of people who didn't support the idea of the buyout, 60 or 70 percent of the farmers signed up for the buyout in that very first year. And that was sort of unanticipated. We didn't expect such a big return of participation in the buyout. No, I don't blame them for taking it. That's their decision. I wouldn't criticize anyone for taking it. The third part of the program has been to try to help farmers find other alternatives and develop some of the skills that they need as they transition out of tobacco into a different market-driven economy than tobacco. There's no alternative. There are things to do. You just have to get out and look for them and find that little niche and go on. The most economical thing or the highest price thing would be marijuana, but so far that's illegal. So. <laughs> Other than marijuana, there's nothing that's going to replace tobacco for return per acre. There's a number of different things that people are doing. Greenhouse, horticulture, bedding plants, cut flower production, 
some of the farms have, have kind of embraced that and, and increased their capacity to do horse boarding. And it's something that there's more potential to get into. Supportive of that is the whole hay production area. There's an incredible demand for hay and straw. When the buyout did come, it was like, oh, hey, I need to do this because I need to find another way to make a living on this farm. So that money financed my hay equipment. So it came at just the right time for me. And the good thing is with the buyout, when I was growing tobacco, we knew the end was coming, but it was hard to develop a new enterprise because we spent all our time growing tobacco. We're not making a living yet doing this. And without the buyout, we couldn't do it. What else are you going to do unless you have equipment or the knowledge of knowing how to raise or do something else? So I think Maryland's very fortunate in the farmers in that we do have the buyout. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take the money while it's there before someone else gets it, and why shouldn't I get it? And this farm certainly should get some money from the tobacco, from what the farm has done for the tobacco industry. So I think it's a good thing for Maryland. We're fortunate to have the money. And, but like I said, if uh, the, the farmers want to still raise the tobacco, my hat's off to them. As I say, for me, what was so exciting to come into this program was the opportunity to work and help people move into other things that might be lucrative and that might help make them a better income over the long haul. There's no state in the entire United States that has offered a buyout. So Maryland is unique and has sort of stepped out on its own to try to help farmers move into something else. They should have given them the money and let them go on ahead and and uh, raise the tobacco and it would have died its own death because of lack of labor and and the uh, poor market prices. They could probably have saved themselves some money because it was going to phase out anyway, I believe. With science, they figured out how to make that tobacco burn and they really don't need, you know, Maryland tobacco. So, you know, we were getting near the end no matter what we decided to do. Before 83, they were growing close to 40 million pounds here in Southern Maryland. Now we're down to three, and you got to really hunt to find them three million. Most of that's coming from the Amish. The major portion of tobacco is raised by the Amish and the Mennonites. And uh, thank goodness for them in my particular case, because I guess 60% uh, of that tobacco out there on the floor is Amish. And the warehouse operators are concerned because they have lost their livelihood as a result of the buyout, or they're losing their livelihood as a result of the buyout, because that's what they've done based on the, the tobacco production. I guess it's, it's a very selfish viewpoint, but I was so upset that our ex-governor and his policies on farm and agriculture, and I just love to see it backfire so bad. I just love to see tobacco hold on. It's been here since 1634. So the state of Maryland spending millions upon millions of dollars in economic development trying to attract any kind of new business into your area. But to kill the oldest industry, established industry that didn't cost anybody anything, kill it with a stroke of a pen. So I like to see it survive. A lot of people say it's never going to survive. The 
governor wanted to get rid of tobacco. He didn't succeed. It'll never be completely gone, I don't think, because as long as there's a market of any kind, be it the auction, it may go to contract basis, uh, I think tobacco will be raised because it is a very profitable crop. To be honest, I, I really haven't missed it very much. I miss the way it was 25 years ago when you felt like the market was going to be good, you felt like you're going to have enough help. But it is still funny because there are things that become so much a part of what you do. If I close my eyes, I could very clearly visualize a row of tobacco and spearing it, for instance. And it would take me about five or ten minutes to get back in the rhythm of throwing tobacco on a stick. And even though up in the barn I wasn't as quick or as, as agile as I was when I was 20, I could just move around to the top of the barn, just, you know, I know where everything is. You know, you, you don't put a foot wrong because you're, you've just done this. Some of them wouldn't tell you that now they will miss it, but they'll miss it. There'll be certain aspects of it they don't miss, but they'll miss it. They've been doing it ever since they were six or seven years old. At that time, the tobacco here in Maryland was planted by hand. The first thing they'd done was drop the plants on the hill for the elders to plant. When they got big enough to do it, they started planting them and somebody else dropped them on the hill. They'll miss it. The dreams of the farmer rest with the rain that was never enough. Whenever it came and we'd watch the sky, but you'd watch in vain at our old but when years were good, it was worth all the pain And we thanked the Lord again and again For the fish in the river, the falling rain At our old home At our old home At our old home At the house by the river at our old home I miss my money for my crop, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have at least two big loads of tobacco. But yet, still I like food. I just love it. And I look at people back and I, Lord, I wish I had worked in back of the year. I still want to farm. Be heard of old people say, grow it up in your blood, I guess. <laughs> Hard to get rid of it. Yeah, I love farm. I like to work. I really work and, and, and being as you're doing nothing, and I figured you work, you live long. <laughs> That's fact. I figured if I believe you work, you live long. I'm going to work long as God let me live and able to get around because I feel bad. I think it's a very fascinating time in the history of Southern Maryland. Not since the advent of the settlers on this land, the colonists who came here, have we seen such a change in the culture and society of Southern Maryland. And I think your project was absolutely fascinating. And I think for you to capture some of those changes, particularly now as they're happening, will be very rewarding. And I think will be interesting as we go through time to look back and see what has happened here in Southern Maryland. Now time and the river, they have their worth. And a man is given a great wide berth. But then he must pay his debt to the earth and go on home. Now trees are coming down for the things they plan And the plow must bow change on the land And nothing is left where the past used to stand At our old home At our old home At our 
just by the river at our old home. You've been listening to the voices of James W. Diggs, Helen Gray, Lindsay Reed, Franklin Wood, S.L. Brady, David Conrad, Dr. Christine Bergmark, Kirsty Unala, John Prouty, Butch Cantor, Buddy Bowling, Judy Levitt, Buddy Hans, and Brother Elmer Makel. The auctioneer, Walter Wilkerson, sold tobacco for 40 years on the floor of the Hughesville Auction House. Musical performances were by Phil Wiggins, David Norris and Terry Nevins, Blue Highways, John Gorka, Lindsey Reed, and Brother Elmer Makel. Born and Raised in Tobacco Fields is a production of Talking Across the Lines, LLC, at historic St. Mary's City. It was written by Carrie Noble Klein and Adam Nordell, edited and produced by Michael Klein. This production is based on field recordings conducted by the Kleins in 2003 for the Calvert County Historic District Commission. For further information on Talking Across the Lines productions, visit our website at folktalk.org. That's www.folktalk.org. For Talking Across the Lines, this is Michael Klein. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50. 50